This is InfoSec Decoded number 81, Squeezed Light, and today you will learn nothing about Omicron, but we will start with NASA from Caitlin. Yeah, so uh, the Indian Express has an article written by uh, Kochi. I, I just love journalists who just have their first name. It's like... Mm -hmm. um, the, the journalist named Kochi. Anyway, so uh, there's not a whole lot going on, but Ro but the Curiosity rover took this awesome picture. It's basically a panorama. So it was taken during two times of two times during the course of a, a Martian Sol, and they combined the images and added some color, and it created an awesome picture. Can we? Can we? Sh I can. Well, let me make it so you can share. Yep. Um, which is here. There. Yes, you can. Okay. Okay. Let, let me um, share screen. Ah, there we go. Let's see if I can't mm -hmm. zoom in. Ah, there we go. So this is the image right here that uh, they took. And what's kind of interesting is, is if you look uh, down at the rover itself, you can see, I believe, to the center left is radio equipment and then in the center here is a, a bunch of plutonium that it basically runs off of uh, in an rtg um, but yeah in the background there's these just wonderful shades and like i said it was taken during two times during the course of the day so you have these like really wonderful gradients and it's just a wonderful picture of mars and that's i just wanted to share with the world this amazing image and the fact that there's plutonium in it, which is cool. Oh, you totally want to move there now, right? Oh, well, you know, if it wasn't for the fact that it was completely lethal and uh, I would rather live in Antarctica than Mars, um, I would totally move there. A few little details. A few little details. Maybe if we terraform Mars yeah. over the course of several thousand years, it might become doable. Yeah, and you might have a more mature attitude about it by then. Yeah. All right, now Urban has got books. Yes, uh, Humble Bundle is back again with more hacking books uh, by No Starch Press. So some good things like the Ghidra book, the Python book, the Go book, uh, quite a number of good stuff for only uh, 30 bucks to get all 18. Yeah, he always has these good deals and No Starch is the best one. I mean, he's approached me a couple of times about writing a book and I figure, you know, if they fire me at the college and I got nothing better to do, I might. But he, actually the best, they treat your authors better than anybody else and their customers. Yeah, I mean, you really get like 20% of the proceeds, whereas other people is like 3% or something. And and they give you like a license-free digital copies, which is, I think, the only way to go because somebody will just rip it off anyway. So why waste your damn time? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, a bunch of good books. Yeah. All right. And Alan has got something wrong with Facebook. No. It seems to be, this This is my, my role on this podcast these days is to just... Uh, come up with all these uh, bad stories about Facebook and Google in this case. The MIT Technology Review has this long article written by Karen Howe that details how Google and Facebook are, as the article describes it, bankrolling clickbait farms. And this is separate from the uh, Facebook papers and the revelations from Francis Hogan, the former Facebook employee who's now gone on to testify before Congress, et cetera. Um, but in this article, 
which is based on interviews with ex-Facebook employees, also uh, some OSINT work and uh, some uh, research into these uh, clickbait farm forums is exactly how these clickbait farms are amplifying uh, destructive content, shall we say, for lack of a better word. And it focuses, this article focuses in particular on clickbait farms in the Philippines, Myanmar, and Cambodia. And uh, in the Philippines and Cambodia in particular, these clickbait farms seem to have had an outside role in the political situations there. In the case of the Philippines, the uh, election of uh, uh, the President Duterte in 2016, and then in Myanmar, the genocide against the Rohingya uh, ethnic minority. And so it's a very long article, well-resourced, uh, researched. And um, not only do these clickbait farms target uh, their own domestic audiences, but they also seem to target other languages, people speaking other languages in other countries. Uh, in, in the case of Cambodia, uh, these Cambodian clickbait farms, there are uh, quite a few um, of these targeting uh, Thai and English speakers. And in Vietnam, a lot of English and Spanish speakers. And the payout is not enormous, but it's not bad, especially for the, uh, given the average incomes in those countries. So there are screenshots of people bragging on uh, the, um, one of these Burmese language forums uh, receiving payouts about $4,500 a month, which is very good money, I imagine, for Myanmar. And so this actually, among other things, this uh, has reoriented my thinking about how people, unscrupulous people, can make money on the internet. And I'd always thought that hacking would be the way that a lot of unscrupulous people could make money over the internet. But I think it turns out that if anything, running disinformation clickbait farms is going to be far more individually profitable than low level hacking. So this is where the action is really at. Oh, I think grifting and scamming is where the action, like I think Gwyneth Paltrow and Alex Jones and Donald Trump and his MAGA game pushing out fake nutritional supplements and stuff. That's where the real money is, 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 you know, crime is like for idiots, you know, doing something that is technically legal, but sleazy is much more productive of money. I think. Uh, yes. And I, I guess it took me this long to figure it out. Yeah. Colloidal silver, silver is where it's at. It's not the latest uh, uh, ransomware. Yeah. And multi-level marketing and all that, you know, it's, um, yeah, the criminals are doing it the hard way. Yeah. All right. Well, I got squeezed light, which I was very interested in because this is what I did for my PhD was laser physics. And I, they, I, now the problem with light, right, is it's too big. Visible light is like 500 nanometers in size. And if you want to like uh, use photolithography and make chips with like a two nanometer channel, the photons are too big. And these guys said they squeezed light down to just a nanometer. I said, that's impossible. How did they do that? So I went back to the earlier article from like several years ago where they explain it and it's bloody brilliant. I remember if you do total internal reflection, if light comes up to an interface like in water coming out of the water, 
and it is coming in at too shallow an angle, the light stays 100% in the water and none of it gets through. And that's why you can't see the fish if you just look at, you see a reflection of the sky instead if you look at a grazing angle at water. But that is not really true. I remember right from the start, there are two kinds of wave propagation. One is the continuous wave propagation that will cover distance and that wave cannot get out of the water. But there's another one, which is a localized wave that only penetrates for like a wavelength or two out of the water with an exponential decay. That's like a local wave front that um, does penetrate the water for a tiny distance. And so you use that kind of wave and now you have like an atomic force microscope with little fiber optics. You move it down right to within like a nanometer of something and you can feel around and you can do spectroscopy of things that way by measuring what reflects them. As long as you get really close, so you do not need traveling waves to enter it, you can totally violate the rule that you can't see a detail smaller than wavelength. And that's what they're doing. And it's bloody brilliant. And they've been doing it for years and trying all kinds of things. They can do um, detailed spectra of atomic scale things, atom by atom. And now they can do etching of things with, with uh, wavelengths of light that are far bigger than the size of what they're etching. So it is bloody brilliant. And they call it squeezed light, which is a cute name for it. So anyway. So I'm trying to understand this. Yeah. So I understand if you have for example, like a sort of a flat wavefront of light. Right. Um, you can think of it also as having individual little waves inside of it kind of as well. Like, you know, that's how like the slit experiments work, you know, where you well, sure, have this, a flat. Yeah. This does not depend on the quantum mechanical nature of light at all. Oh. This is totally predictable, even for good old Maxwell's equations. If you move something up to a barrier where it doesn't have enough energy to get through, for example, then a small amount of it is stored there like a battery. The same thing happens with a guitar string. When you pluck a guitar string, there's two things that happen. First, you hear a white noise click from the pick on the string. That's the transient wave. Then you get the sustained wave, which is the pure note. This is the transient. People ignore it because it only happens at the point of discontinuity for a brief period. But that's the point. There is a there, you can have this thing called frustrated total internal reflection, where you have light coming in from glass, and then you move other glass down to within a wavelength, and then there'll be a transmitted wave, because it can jump across the gap. That's what it is. Mm -hmm. so, so basically, the, the gap between the, the sensor or the light emitting part, and the what they're looking at is less than the wavelength yes. of the light? Yes. Oh. That's why it's like an atomic force microscope, which is like a phonograph needle. You have to have this tiny point that goes down and touches the atoms one by one, and then you move it around, <clears throat> which is- and That is, I'm trying to understand how this works. So, yeah. so if let's say I have a radio wave- Yep. That is, let's say one meter in length. Okay, then you run it through waveguide. I run it through a waveguide, and then supposedly I can then use that to resolve an image that's less than a meter. And yes, much less. You, you have a, a narrow point and at the narrow point, a small amount of electromagnetism passes beyond it for a small distance, less than a wavelength. And then you move it around tiny distances and you measure the change as you move it around. Oh, okay. I 
you can do it. Be the standard, the whole, the standard optics only considers the transmitted wave, but there's also a transient wave if you get within one wavelength of an edge. And you can use that, which is something everybody else just considers that unimportant waste and ignores it. But these guys said they could use it, which is pretty brilliant. Anyway, they call it squeezed light. And that's why I thought, thought it was an interesting step forward in physics. Anyway, so, um, all right. And then we got the James Webb telescope. Right. Uh, so <laughs> New Atlas has an article written by uh, Michael Irving. Uh, saying that the James Webb Telescope is cleared for launch on December 22nd. So what happened? Well, uh, engineers were preparing the James Webb Space Telescope for, for launch, as one does, and then they sort of accidentally the telescope. Um, it, it's not entirely clear what happens. Um, it sounds based on the what was given out that they dropped it. <laughs> <laughs> essentially like it, it's the, there was a lot of sort of not I don't want to say double speak but you know PR speak like there were un, there were unplanned vibrations in you know and and when it de a decoupled uh un, when there was a decoupled unplanned uh event <laughs> since uh yeah the vibrations through the telescope which really does sound like they dropped it essentially you, you know this I had a guy one of my students was in the military and he told this story. They're out on the ship and they had the new $10 million helicopter that they were going to test. And the waves came in a storm hit and they forgot to tie it down and it fell off the edge and sunk down. And they were looking at each other. Uh, how are we going to write this up? We're going to make up some cover story. Right. Right. <laughs> so it's, it's not necessarily a cover story. It's like I said, it's this sort of PR speak. So anyway, so basically what happened is that there was a clamp um, that kind of released the James Webb Space Telescope, which sent vibrations through it. And um, people were thinking, oh gosh, it's gonna get delayed again, because this thing has been waiting to get off the ground for who knows how long now, just years and years and years. Um, but it turns out that yes, it does look like it's gonna be fine. Uh, they're gonna, launch it December 22nd, even despite the fact that they kind of accidentally the telescope and everything looks like it's on track again. So that's good. And it's when it gets up there, it's the replacement for Hubble, right? So it'll have a bunch of awesome pictures, right? It's it's largely a replacement for Hubble. It, it is looking at a slightly different um, wavelength of, of light. Uh, however, one of the big things it's going to do, from my understanding, uh, and I'm not a telescope expert. Um, however, it will be looking at things like atmospheres on exoplanets. Yeah. Which is going to be pretty big. Yeah, yeah. Well, great. All right. And Irvin has something wrong with Windows 11. Uh, well, something wrong, but surprise, surprise. Uh, not many people are using Windows 11. Well, there is uh, no reason to use Windows 11, right? right. There's no reason, the, all the restrictions, the removing of support for older computers, yeah. uh, people not liking the interface, you know, the usual stuff, plus the new things that they threw on Windows 11 is causing 0.021% uh, of PC users to switch to Windows 11. 0.02%? <laughs> yeah. The people using Windows XP is 
no 0.2%. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's, that's impressive. You know, Microsoft, this has happened with Windows 10 and Microsoft just got pushier and pushier. You have to move to Windows 10. Yeah, I'm sure they're going to do that. I mean, there's more people using Windows 8. <laughs> yeah. I mean, as long as Microsoft gives an option for people to roll back to Windows 10, I think that's just what's going to happen. People are going to roll back. The only way Microsoft can force people to, you know, keep the Windows 11 upgrades is if they suddenly, like, cut out that feature. So, they, which or they, if, they, if they fixed all their restrictions. Well, they did cut out that feature. I was reading the article about it. You can only roll back for 10 days. After that, you're wait, stuck with Windows 11. Wait, why Why only 10 days? To, for, to make you stuck with Windows 11. Oh, God. <laughs> it's, that's right. Microsoft is doing all the old evil stuff from the bad days. Uh, they seem to have uh, totally reverted back to just evil, like forcing you to use Edge, blocking other stuff. They're doing all the stuff that they got chewed for in, in 2008. Obviously, they did not learn their lesson. Or maybe they well, learned the lesson like a lot of people did from Trump, that you can just break the law and nothing will happen. I mean, the, the, Microsoft got so much better. They, uh, that, you know, they, they used to be the laughing stock of security. Yeah, They used to just do all these antitrust practices. Mm -hmm. and well, then they, they got scared. And then they got scared and they cut it out and, you know, people sort of were like, okay, Microsoft, as long as you, you know, we're going to trust you now, but apparently, you know, the, the best behavior of future, be the best predictor of future behavior is past behavior. Yeah. Well, if I was a business consultant, I would tell them, look, I think the Democrats are helpless. They can't solve any of their own problems. None of this antitrust stuff is going to happen. And then the Republicans are going to get in again. So go ahead and do all the abuse you want. Nothing's going to happen for the next eight or 12 years. I think it's a wise bet if the only thing you care about is money. I mean, Elizabeth Warren would like to punish them, but I don't think she's going to get a chance to. We're going to see. Yeah. Anyway, uh, Alan has got something wrong with Facebook. It's another bad Facebook story. This time, um, it's from uh, USA Today, and it's part of the Facebook papers dump from uh, Francis Hogan. This was leaked from the, uh, uh, the trove of documents that she gave the, uh, to Congress, congressional investigators. And this regards Facebook internal surveys and studies of what they call lower skilled users and what these lower skilled users are seeing in their Facebook feeds. And it turns out that uh, lower skilled users who are disproportionately older, people of color and less well-educated um, and uh, which constitute about a sixth of the user base in the US and up to half of the user base uh, in other places around the world, that all these folks, uh, because they do not really understand very well how computers work and how the Facebook platform works, they get a lot of content in their feed that they don't want to see. And that's actually very distressing uh, or destructive to them. One example given was somebody who was in Narcotics Anonymous kept getting ads for alcohol and posts about drinking. So um, although these the details of the studies are not made entirely clear, I don't know how large the sample size is 
uh, were, for example. I don't know how in-depth um, the researchers got into examining each case. It appears that um, the algorithm, the Facebook news algorithm, likes to feed people rubbish content. And it relies on these people to, on the users, to actually go out of their way, essentially, to mark uh, undesired stories or items as undesirable. Dislike and, or something, right? Yeah, to, to, to dislike them. I don't use Facebook, so I don't, I don't know all these details. But I understand yeah. it's the same with TikTok. You're choosing what you like, and that's how it learns what to show you. Right, right, right. And that's the thing about Facebook is that unsophisticated users are not really capable of choosing and indicating what they like and dislike. So by default, they keep getting more and more bad stuff because they have not indicated any dislike of the bad stuff. And although the article does not bring it up, I do wonder if this helps fuel some of the more radical content out there, uh, be it uh, anti-vax or uh, racist content and what have you. Because well, that you know, gets I, engagement. Yeah, I think they just put up whatever's popular. And so it's, of course, uh, those offensive things are probably get more clicks on the average. Right, right. But it also it is a feedback loop in which the uh, unsophisticated users don't know any better to dislike that content. And so more and more of it is served up to them and to others mm -hmm. who fit their profiles, demographic and otherwise. Yeah. Well, it makes sense. That's why, I mean, that's, that's Facebook's somewhat innocent argument is they didn't actually plan to destroy the world. They just programmed a robot to make the maximum amount of money and destroying the world was just an unexpected collateral damage. Right, right. Though it's amazing how important these uh, news algorithms are to Facebook and yet how little they understand of how they actually work. Well, I think they know what makes money. That's why I remember when I, when I read the other articles about this uh, Francis Haugen dump, they said they had this like uh, civic responsibility unit that would say, look, you have to turn this off. And they said, absolutely not, because it makes a lot of money. Right. So you'd think they'd come up with other better ways to make money. Well, you know, they claim they're trying to do that, and maybe they are. It's all about the augmented reality. And yes. So now the whole world can be like Facebook. Yes. Wouldn't that be swell? Oh, amazing. <laughs> yeah. I don't know about that. That's, well, you know, they already want to be your bank, and for some reason, people aren't letting them do that. Yes. Yeah, anyway. anyway, so I got an article from uh, uh, Brian Krebs about BGP, which is hilarious, and I didn't realize how bad it was. BGP is responsible for all the large-scale routing of the internet, and he explains what the problem is, there are BGP um, for top level internet providers that support really old authentication protocols, including one called mail from where it will change routes based entirely on just the from address in an email you send, no password or anything. And that you can just forge easily. So that's bloody awesome. This is anybody could just forge the from address on an email and reroute large portions of the internet and they said since 2012, they've been recommending that people don't use that. But now that he's humiliated them by publishing this, they say, well, we'll, we'll do something about that. And they claim that they have compensating controls, which is, 
you know, that's not a bad plan. I mean, if you have some legacy system like this, they say some of our customers are still using it. You could make it safer by having some other layer that only lets certain from addresses be accepted from your trusted customers or something. And they imply without stating clearly that they have been protecting it. And the other thing about it is they say there's no evidence that anybody ever exploited this. But it really is sort of horrible how vulnerable BGP is and therefore the whole internet. And we're all trusting it for, you know, phone calls and heart monitors and emergency services and everything else. And it really is just appallingly poorly designed for reliability. Anyway, then we got uh, Caitlin with Grinches. Yep, it's Christmas time again. And Bloomberg, our favorite news source of all time, uh, has an article uh, by uh, Daniela Sirtori uh, Cortina. What's going on? Well, people are, we were talking earlier in the podcast about if you want to make money unethically, you don't want to necessarily commit crime. You just sort of want to, you know, grift, let's just say, and do things that are technically legal, but scummy. Um, and, and that's what's been going on a lot in supply chain related uh, markets. So for a while now, people, if, if there was like a hot product, uh, people would buy up entire inventories, uh, raise the prices and resell it on eBay, uh, essentially scalping. Um, now, this has always been an issue. It's always been very annoying. If you want a new product, uh, you have to wait an extra long time uh, because not only are you competing with short, short stock, but also people who are intentionally buying up all that stock and then raising the price artificially. Um, so like if you want a new computer with the newest processor, you're probably going to be waiting like six months um, for, you know, for the supply to even out as opposed, I don't know how long it would take without scalpers, but I assume it would be maybe two to three months. Um, anyway, uh, so our glorious lawmakers have taken note of this and a group of Democrats want to enact laws to make it illegal to do this. And their reason behind this is that one of the popular scalping techniques is to go after popular toys during Christmas. And as a result, parents can't buy or find popular toys that kids want. And as a result, these scalpers are essentially sort of, and I don't, I don't want to say they're ruining Christmas for kids because you know Christmas is not about the presents, but if you're six years old, it's about the presents. So <laughs> yeah, I was thinking you might have to be deported from America there for a minute. I'm yeah, 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 yeah. So um this isn't about the presents. What's wrong with you, Caitlin? No, well, I mean, if you're if you're six, it's all about the presents, and you know, parents can't get can't get what they want. It's just so annoying. Uh, so there are talks about enacting laws. Now, I don't know how these laws would be enforced. I mean, how do you know someone um, bought up an entire stock and sold it on eBay versus someone who maybe bought one and thought, yeah, no, I don't really want it. I'll sell it on eBay. Um, um, maybe make it illegal to sell it above the MSRP by a certain amount, like more than 10%, then it gets, you know, I don't know. But um, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll see how this works. I, I don't think it's going to go anywhere, but it is nice to know that uh, a lot of our annoyances are being seen. 
Yeah, I guess. And they want to do something about people using bots to like uh, do pro programmed bidding. Right. And that, that's how it, that's how it works. So it's not just people sitting at their computers buying stuff um, bots to, uh, you know, make the playing field uneven. Um, if you're in the business of buying up entire stocks, you don't sit on a web page and click buy, 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 buy. You have a bot or a program do that for you uh, on a scale that just instantly empties out the inventory before anyone even has a chance to put in their order. So. Which is also the only way to get a ticket to ShmooCon, as far as I can tell. Yeah, yeah. And because of, once again, scalpers. Well, no, in that case, it's security professionals. But anyway. Yeah. What's the difference? Well, a scalper intentionally buys something not to go to it, yeah. but to sell it at a higher price. Uh, whereas security professionals will buy it um, and then not go because they forget about it. You know, I wonder if there are people scalping ShmooCon tickets. And if not, why not? It's a good question. This might be a way to make money anyway. It's the same. Anyway, I imagine someone would get mad at you. But anyway, so Irvin has got the Winter Hacker Festival. Yes. We, uh, finally, Pacific Hackers is back in person on the 11th. Uh, we have drone hacking, uh, lock picking, and rods, no quarter CTF. Well, it sounds great. My first thought is that Omicron is going to rain on it, but now the news articles I'm reading now are suggesting that maybe it won't be that bad. Yeah, I, I think we're good to go. That would be nice if we could start going to conferences again. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that's, that's happening at the Maker Nexus. It's actually a pretty uh, nice place. I haven't been there. there. I've been you, to Hacker Dojo. Uh, this is a new one, huh? Yeah, this it's better than Hacker Dojo. Oh, I thought Hacker Dojo was pretty nice. So that's great. Um, it from the front, not okay. not behind the scenes. Okay. Yeah. So this uh, this place was much better. Well, good. I'm glad to hear it because the you were meeting in the library and all sorts of goofy places. Meeting in some kind of hacker space would be better, I think. Yeah, I, I think this will be better long term. Yeah. All right. And Alan has got ghost kitchens. Yeah, I've been hearing about this talk about ghost kitchens, and this article in the Wall Street Journal comes out at a good time for me. It's about a company called Reef. Oh, can you turn up your volume a bit, Alan? You're quieter than the rest of us, I think. Oh, dear. Let me see here. How about now? Oh, that's better. Yeah. Oh, okay. Still working on my audio setup here. Yep. Uh, yeah, so at any rate, this company called Reef, which is one of the major uh, ghost kitchen operators of the world, backed by SoftBank Group, which is also known for having purchased ARM and also for having bankrolled WeWork, um, they poured $1.5 billion into Reef, and Reef operates only about 600 or so uh, or 700 uh, trailers mostly that they park in parking lots in major cities around the US. And these trailers are kind of like food trucks in that they've got wheels and they are at least somewhat mobile, but they don't have any walk up traffic. There's nobody actually going there to buy food. Instead, these operations service delivery, food delivery. Uh, drivers only. And depending on the company, of course, um, different uh, operators have different menus, but Reef in particular has uh, 
struck some deals with uh, Wendy's, for example. So if you order Wendy's online for delivery, it's not that food is not being made at a Wendy's restaurant. Instead, it's being made in one of these reef kitchens in a parking lot somewhere in a food trailer. Anyway, this article details a number of problems that Reef has had, including uh, multiple propane gas explosions that have hurt workers, including um, one in uh, San Francisco, and also how the company has gone ahead and opened up some of these trailers before they've even received uh, permitting from local cities and uh, health departments, which is a huge no-no. And so they've gotten those shut down um, at times. But uh, this really represents a new change in food and food delivery. Um, and the economics of it are going to be very peculiar because uh, something like three and a half billion dollars have been put into this ghost kitchen industry. And the one and a half billion dollars that Reef got enabled it to buy two of the largest private parking lot operators in America, which seems like a very interesting or peculiar play, except when you remember that their whole business model is to park trailers in parking lots in large cities. That's where they locate themselves rather than using existing vacated restaurant uh, space. So uh, it's just another example of how uh, venture capital logic is perhaps distorting not only the restaurant industry, but the city parking industry. Yeah, yeah. Well, it makes sense, really. When you order something online, you don't really know or care where they made it. Yeah, right. And I, I suppose nobody will care so long as the food tastes good, but the food seldom does taste good. And you also have to wonder about the sanitation practices at these places. Yeah, yeah. All right. And I, I, I got another uh, physics one, which is pretty awesome. You know, quantum, quantum computers are pretty miserable. They have to cool them down near absolute zero. They have noisy qubits. They have magnetic interactions that aren't as precise as they should be. And these guys have another way to do it, which sounds bloody awesome. They just use photons, beam splitters, and uh, wave cavities, which are, we can all run at room temperature, and they're all commercial items you can just buy, and then they can make one qubit. They have two arms of an interferometer. They call one arm zero. They call the other arm one. It has a probability of going down, or one direction is zero. The other direction is one or something. They can make a mixed state. The point is, they can make one qubit that is essentially perfect, and they say you don't need multiple qubits. You can rewrite the program to just use one qubit, like single processing, you do one operation at a time, and therefore you can run quantum mechanics calculations without all the refrigeration and everything. So it sounds like it might be a great step forward. Um, we'll see if this really works for real quantum computing, but you know the, uh, the current technology being used for quantum computing is ridiculously difficult and expensive, and this sounds like a great step forward. And there were a couple of short ones that I saw right before the podcast and threw in here. Elon Musk sent out an email to his staff right before Thanksgiving saying, forget it, you don't get to go home for Thanksgiving. Everybody has to come in and work through Thanksgiving holiday, and I'm going to be working all night, which apparently he does all the time. He said, I was going to take my first weekend off for years, but SpaceX is having huge trouble building their rocket engines. And he said, it is so severe that we may go bankrupt next year. If we don't fix the assembly line, it's building these rockets. So he called everybody in from Thanksgiving to work through the holiday. 
fixing the assembly line that makes those rocket engines. So that's, I don't imagine he can do that all the time. <laughs> and uh, the last one is Zoom is getting sued for leaking your data to Facebook and everybody using Zoom, including us, can get $25 by writing into Zoom and demanding our share of this class action settlement. So apparently Zoom has been punished for some kind of privacy breach. And you can get 25%, $25 or 15% of the money you paid for Zoom. You can get it back. So don't overlook that. Uh, well, that's it then. And we'll be back on Friday.